Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I was babysitting up until just a few years ago, just to make ends meet. I'm so lucky I, I've always been supported. I've always kind of found a way through. My parents supported me and I was able to do little things, commercials, little things here and there that um, helped me survive. But this has never been the, the biggest moneymaker for me until, until more recently, where I've started to kind of establish myself more um, as an actor and, uh, you know, get, get paid uh, for the first time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's never been a thing, money. I'm still, still waiting, still waiting for some checks. Actor, playwright, and all-around multimedia funny woman Tara Grami, born in Iran, raised in Canada, mingles with former royalty. Now she's putting Irangelis on the map. Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor, Learn more at SalomonLudwin.com. This show podcasts on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple. Subscribe at FullDRadio.com. Joining me from Terangelis, California, such a pleasure, Tara Grammy, an Iranian-Canadian actor, producer, and playwright. She, indeed, she grew up in Canada, but she was born in Iran. Uh, Tara played Nusha on the 2020 romance comedy A Simple Wedding, which co-starred Shora Ardashlu and Rita Wilson. She co-wrote and played in The Persian Bachelorette, a raucous comedy that is all over YouTube. Uh, I am a huge fan, and I'm so grateful that you set aside time to finally uh, subordinate your career and come on Full Disclosure. That is so sweet. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. What is the requisite amount of tarof? Explain for our, our radio listeners out there. There's kind of this preemptive, courteous self-flagellation among Iranians where, no, shame on me that I didn't come sooner. Shame on me that I took an hour out of your schedule. 100-year curse on my family that I didn't send a producer with a microphone to you. Yes, it's it's a very important part of our culture. Um, I thought we were going to allot at least five to ten minutes of it on this show, uh, where we just, you know, we talk about um, sacrificing ourselves for each other, um, how embarrassed we are to be in each other's presence. Things like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, oh, uh, unnecessarily <laughs> intense uh, projection, which, by the way, I've always wanted to say with a fellow Iranian, I find that when I do mansplain that to fellow Americans are like, wow, that is an interesting uh, paradox in that Iran, since the, the revolution more than 40 years ago, gets this menacing reputation as a place that's not hospitable, as a place that will take you hostage. <laughs> and so there's this duality of, of Persian culture. Yeah, but it's the opposite. I mean, we're so hospitable that it feels like we're taking you hostage with our hospitality. You know what I mean? It's more that vibe. And kick the sand kick the sand off my grave if I never am. So uh, <laughs> uh, that must translate. But yes, and I digress as I normally do. Tell me when you left Iran and what your initial memory was in coming out of, of that country. Um, I left Iran a bunch of times when I was a kid. I had kind of a all over the place kind of childhood where first we moved to the US when I was two, but then my dad couldn't get a visa. So we moved back to Iran. And then we moved to Canada when I was about six, my mom and I, because my parents got a divorce. So um, I was kind of all over the place when I was a kid between Iran, the U.S. and Canada. But we finally, finally left uh, Iran when I was six and um, moved to Toronto, which is, yeah, a very heavily immigrant culture. There's a lot of immigrants in Toronto. And I was in class with mostly kids from Hong Kong, and I wanted to be just like them. So I would make my mom take me to the uh, Asian supermarket and buy Asian <laughs> snacks um, because that's uh, what I thought was normal. And my mom was like, I brought you to Canada. What's going on? Why do you think you're from Hong Kong? Um, also, the cold winter, I remember my mom bundling me up a bunch because it was so cold in Toronto. When did you make people laugh officially? I remember my father, you know, there's a 
he, whenever we'd have somebody over, he would have, uh, you know, pour a beer and give me a tiny drop of the beer in another cup. And I, I'd share this vulgarity when I toasted the person kind of as a five or six year old. And I got such a rise out of the room. And my mother was so mortified that I continued to want to think that I was funny for the rest of my life. And here I am today trying to be funny with you. But when did you have that epiphany? Um, it was a little bit later in life. I think we moved to Germany when I was about 13. And I went to a British private school, which was so different from the Canadian public school I was in in Toronto. And my way of making friends was kind of utilizing the fact that I'm completely shameless and will do anything to get a laugh. Um, and that's how I made friends, just by being silly. Well, I mean, I have to ask, without mm -hmm. being your psychotherapist, was it to conceal volatility or turmoil at home? Was it to conceal another identity or did this just kind of come to you naturally? I think it came to me naturally. My my dad is super funny, um, very much a people person. My mom's really funny too. Um, I think it was more of, uh, it, it, there's probably some psychological thing behind it. I'm sure there is. Um, but I think it was more just because I wanted to make friends and uh, everyone loves uh, the funny guy, right? You know, hmm. I just wanted to be loved. You can give me a you can give me a copay for this after we're done, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I I really think it was more about just wanting to fit in and finding comedy as a way, like as the great connector between between people. You know, I went to another international school, people from all over the world, and uh, it was kind of laughing together and making jokes and being silly was how I made friends. Was there stigma attached to being? Iranian in Canada at the very least. I mean, I know I felt it in the United States where I'd always be called a, you know, terrorist or a camel jockey or Saddam, you know, into the 90s or something like that. Iran was kind of this catch basin for everything that was uh, bizarre and menacing and exotic and, and terrorist oriented out of the Middle East. I never had that experience growing up in Canada. Um, Toronto is a very multicultural city. Everyone is from somewhere else. And Racism, I think, is more, it's more under cover. <laughs> There's a terrible way to say it, but it's, it's just, it's less blatant than it is here in the U.S. There are so many different cultures, so many different types of people. I never felt like an outsider because everybody was an outsider. I felt different in that, you know, I looked different from the kids in my class because there weren't that many Iranian immigrants at the time that we moved mm. to Canada. But uh, I never really felt like the other, the way that Iranians in America did, that I've heard stories about here. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the band Rush, which I conflate with Toronto and Canada, right? You have a, a European guitarist, you have the son of Holocaust survivors in, in Getty Lee and everything, and I don't think people appreciate the, the Chinese population in Toronto and how much of a, of a diaspora that kind of built that city at the very least. Yeah, absolutely. Toronto was definitely built by immigrants. So when did you have your moment of inception where, you know what, I can make a living out of this theoretically. I can, you know, get the table stakes thing as a child, of, as an immigrant child, go to college, get my degree, and then go on and formalize this into a career. Do you, was there a moment that somebody kind of pull you aside, a mentor, a movie you saw, a performance, a personality? Well, when I was eight years old, um, my grandpa sat me on his lap and he asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said I wanted to be Gugush, who's an Iranian um, actress, singer, cultural icon. And then um, that kind of formed my identity uh, about, you know, what I want to be when I grow up. And then that's kind of the path that I followed for the rest of my life. I got into a bunch of different university programs um, out of high school and I got into a the Ryerson journalism program, which is an amazing program that a bunch of my friends did. Then I also got into a theater program at the University of Toronto. And much to my mother's dismay, who really wanted me to be a journalist, um, I chose uh, the theater program and it's, you know, the rest is history. That was kind of like the path that mm. solidified me going into a career in, in acting, in performance. And I went into journalism, much to my mother's dismay. <laughs> I know this show is not about me, but uh, when I left a career of investing management to go into financial journalism, every Persian uncle I knew and didn't know I had uh, turned, you know, pulled me to the side and it's like, why is it good? Is it commission? Why you did they they pay you for it? Why did you open up a gas station in Ventura? Um, and so that's the pushback I got from doing something that's so not in the binary of 
you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know why journalism was the best option for my mom because it's not much easier than being an actor. But uh, yeah, it was definitely what was expected of me if I didn't go into law or engineering. So actually you have my mom's dream job. So <laughs> good for you. So Hanom, Tara, what was your big break? But people ask you this or if they have a a moment kind of where they pull you aside where you realize it wasn't just a hobby or something you did for relatives during Noruz, but this is something that you could actually make an international name for yourself and potentially a living out of? Um, I wrote uh, and performed um, a one-woman show called Mahmoud. Give me the year. Uh, this is right when I graduated university. Um, we wrote it in, started writing in 2009, and then 2010, I uh, fi- like kind of finished writing it. And by 2011, I was uh, performing it in Toronto to sold out houses. So it was straight out of college. It was like uh, a long time ago now, <laughs> 10, 11 years ago. It's pretty crazy. So tell me about Mahmoud. Mahmoud is a one-woman show. I play three characters. I play an Iranian uh, engineer turned uh, cab driver who lives in Toronto, which is a very common story in in, uh, Iranian immigrants in in Canada, especially at that time. Um, I play myself at the age of 12 when I was going through puberty and forming my identity and um, really hated being Iranian. Mm. Uh, And then I play an... uh, Spanish gay man uh, by the name of Emanuelos who's in love with an Iranian man and their their stories kind of intertwine and uh, it's explores the identities of I mean explores the themes sorry of identity of home of um, what it is really to be an immigrant and um, an Iranian immigrant in particular. I haven't talked about it in a really long time, so I don't know if that description was very good, but I did my best. Well, I, and I want to know what the process is like. So if you're graduating from college in 2010, not so long ago, you're a young one. What did you do? I mean, did you just do this as a, as a hobby on the side or was there a course that surrounded this? Because again, I mean, it came out of the gates and then it suddenly went international and, and continental, right? across the United States and your name is stamped all over it and the pictures are all over Google now and you can see the monologues uh, and the one woman play thing on on YouTube. Uh, What was it like writing that or how did you get the inspiration for it? So it started off as a 10 minute solo uh, piece that we did at the University of Toronto. It was kind of our final project where we had to write something and I'd never written anything before. Um, So I was going home really late that night, like at one o'clock in the morning and I had to take a cab home and my cab driver was Iranian. And we ended up having this discussion with him talking about, you know, the glory of Iran in the olden days, but um, you know, how he, how much he hated what Iran was like now and he didn't want to go back. And I kind of called him a hypocrite. And I was like, how can you turn your back on your country? Um, Because I was going to Iran every summer at that time. And I, the next day I uh, put on some electrical tape on my face, like a mustache. And I started to call myself Mahmoud, which is um, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's name, um, who was the former president of Iran. And because uh, I, the reason we picked the name is because if it was like if he had moved to Canada instead of staying in Iran, he could have been a cab driver. <laughs> um, it was fun to explore that. Um, and then I was kind of just Mahmoud, this this Iranian man character all day. And then I wrote out the conversation between myself and the cab driver that I'd had, and turned it into a ten minute solo piece, which you know uh, ended up getting a standing ovation from all of my my peers and and my teachers and everybody loved and then it all takes place in 2009 which is when the green wave movement was happening in in Iran and it was so hard for me and and all Iranians the ones outside of Iran feeling so helpless like we finally had some hope that uh things might change and then they didn't and it ended up in a bloody mess so um, my co-writer, who also directed it, Tom Arthur Davis, he encouraged me to develop this 10-minute solo piece into a longer form play. And 
Over the next couple of years, we continue to develop it and make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And then the rest is kind of history. And what's crazy that happened is that Woody Harrelson came to see it in 2011 when we did it in uh, Toronto, just because he happened to have my friend as a waitress in a restaurant. Um, and he was doing a play there and at the University of Toronto, actually. And my friend was like, hey, my my other friend who went to the University of Toronto program is doing her play tonight. You should come see it. And he came wow. and he loved it. And then the next day he bought out half the seats. He brought everyone he knew in Toronto. He, you know, started advertising my one woman show on every interview that he did. And basically he put Mahmoud on the map and he caused us to sell out every night and he really changed my life. Um, it was really cool. And so, so that part of it was kind of luck, you know, him coming and seeing this little show that we'd thrown together with the support of the Iranian community. Um, yeah, I, I forgot to mention, we, we managed to get like $5,000 or something from just like Iranian rich donors who were like, sure, little girl, put up your play. And we rented out a theater in Toronto. And yeah, the rest is kind of history. It ended up going to New York and um, at the New York Fringe Festival and won a bunch of awards. And then I brought it here to LA. I took it to San Francisco. And um, it was nominated for some very prestigious Canadian awards. And that's where we're at today. So how old were you when all this happened? Will you please timestamp it for me? I was 22. Who the heck does that happen to at age 22? You're either stuck in a dead-end investment banking or paralegal job. Like, it seems like miraculous things happen in Canada. You guys are so enlightened and you fund the arts and you have people sell out shows of a college graduate who taped a mustache on her nose and everything. It's a, it's a great story. Thank you, yeah. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Joining me from Irangelis is Iranian-Canadian actor, producer, and playwright Tara Grami. I just like to call you a funny woman because... Your stuff on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook just had me in stitches. I mean, the Persian bachelorette, Manija, the kind of the nettlesome, gossipy woman who comes in and does home renovations and everything. You have a you have this deadpan to you. I mean, it's it's dead on, but it's not exactly mean, right? Uh, the, the certain turns of phrase and everything. I must have shared the Persian bachelorette a zillion times last year. Thank you so much. That's so cool of you. Your support is, I mean, I can't believe. Is that you... persona loosely based on someone? Oh, all Iranian women all over the world, obviously. It's uh, very. <laughs> what uh... you are doing, what you are doing. <laughs> what you are doing. Yeah, it's it's very much a Persian auntie, a very obnoxious Persian auntie character which I think all of us know, all of us have, all Iranians have that auntie, whether it's their mom's friend. The aunties, or, right. Mm-hmm, whether it's their mom's friend or uh, their actual aunt who's who's like that. So um, I kind of just embodied that. I've always done Persian characters. I've always I played. have an auntie. I have, for what it's worth, I have an auntie manager in in Terangelis, and she's the quietest, chillest, coolest one. She's the least nettlesome of all the aunts. But anyway, I do have others that that kind of, you know, what is it, biaberu, or what is the word They're for it? They're kind of just up poru. in your face. Overbearing doesn't exactly explain it. It's Poru, poru yeah. yeah, it's they're they're poru. They're they're obnoxious, basically. There's no other way to to say it. They're poru. They'll just they'll tell you you've gained weight. They've tell you they'll tell you that you lost weight. They'll tell you look like crap. They'll they'll tell you your furniture is ugly. They'll even tell you your kid is ugly if you let them. Supposed love. Yeah, but it's it's all out of love. Take me back. Take me back to the first foray back into the United States as a budding star. As a I call you Grammy hopeful, <laughs> right? You had this you had this incredible play under your belt. And we're at the time that things are truly accelerating over YouTube and social media over the past 10, 12 years. What did you do? You just flew, flew straight into Iran. I'm sorry, uh, LA. <laughs> They're synonymous pretty much. You flew straight into LA and San Francisco when they rolled out the red carpet in, in regional theaters and you had to kind of learn that world? No, I actually, I'm really lucky. Um, I really got lucky with management. I had a manager straight out of doing the show in uh, New York who uh, was based out of Los Angeles. And she kind of encouraged me to come to LA. And then Woody Harrelson wrote me this incredible recommendation letter, which helped me get the O-1 visa, which is an extraordinary person's visa 
visa to actually be able to work as an actor in LA. So he kind of kind of changed my wow. life. Um, I don't think he even knows that, but he really played a role in me being able to move here and to start a, a true career here in, in LA. Um, Were you able to pull him aside for mentoring or anything like, oh, Mr. Harrelson? Or was it just kind of a brief introduction meeting? Because that guy could be a kingmaker. Oh, yeah. If he introduces you to the right names. Yeah, he was really busy at the time. He was actually just about to shoot True Detective. So I um, mm -hmm. reached out to him and said, uh, you know, I was I was going to do the show here in L.A. And my uh, partner at the time, uh, Tom, wasn't here he wasn't going to do it so I really needed a director and I asked him I was like Woody would you be willing to direct this run of Mahmoud and he was like oh my god I would love to I'm just you know in New Orleans shooting for the uh, for like a million years so uh it didn't he wow. would have he would have helped he's he was so kind and he loved the show and I hope he remembers it one day one day I will reach out to Woody Harrelson and I'll thank him for everything he did for me I don't think he even has any idea what he's done but he's a great guy I had no idea that recommendation letters mattered. I mean, oh, it's not yeah. like you're trying to apply to a PhD program or anything. You're trying to break it big into kind of the Tony slash Hollywood film universe, which, which, by the way, everything like that kind of blended into one. You know, looking back on the past 10 years, we see an explosion in streaming. Uh, Netflix suddenly becomes one of the biggest content creators on the planet. Amazon kind of names that if you were kind of hatching the scheme 15 years ago, you would have thought, I'd love to be signed by a studio and a major talent agency. Point being is you could kind of, you know, the barriers to entry right now, and especially over the past 10 years, have been brought down so low between camera technology, uh, uh, things that you could post, creatives out there who can dress it up for social and make it go viral. How did you bone up on that and how did you embrace it fully? I think I just always aligned myself with people who knew what they were doing. I, I love collaborating and I just always created my own work and and found different people who were good at this stuff, like Cheyenne Ebrahim, who helped me create the Manija character and, and those skits. And I'm working on other projects with him. Or my manager, Ray Mohit, who, you know, kind of always pushed me in the direction of, of, of creating my own work. And uh, yeah, I think that's where I really got the luckiest It was the people I aligned myself with and also my own drive to always keep creating and keep up with the times. And, you know, I got into YouTube. I, I started using Instagram, just using these platforms that were available to me to, to create and to be seen as a performer. Tara, what did your mom think about your break into this? Clearly, it was a prestigious thing, and it had a, a a patina of kind of you know academic imprimatur to it. And you coming out of college and doing it, and it was you got great awards and great recognition. What did your mom and kind of her family and everybody else in in Iran think to the extent you could pull them on it? My mom is incredibly proud of me, and there was a specific moment where she became extremely extremely proud of me. Um, when I performed Mahmoud in front of the former queen of Iran, which was like a huge deal. Wait, you just kind of said that parenthetically. You performed your caricature, your kind of blended gender caricature for Queen Farah, the the late Shah's wife. How, when, how did this happen? Can you tell me? Um, yeah, I was invited to perform um, excerpts of Mahmoud at a, at a gala that was held for the former queen and former crown prince of Iran, um, who are, you know, also cultural icons in, in especially the Iranian diaspora. And uh, yeah, I performed in front of like 300 people having dinner, which was definitely not an ideal way to perform. Um, but it was my mom flew in from Europe. My mom and my stepdad live in Europe. My mom flew in from Europe and she was just beaming the entire time um, the show was happening. It was it was a really incredible experience. It was totally surreal and i what did she say what did she say to the queen of iran what did you say to the queen of iran or the crown prince you know i was so what what, what do you even do i was just so surprised by how down to earth um the 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 former queen is i mean she was like a grandma she was so sweet she kind of afterwards uh after my performance i changed into my gown and i went up to meet her and she didn't recognize me because i looked so different from from when i was performing and she was like 
oh my god that was you it's like yeah she's like how old are you i was like i'm 25 she's like wow you are so talented can i take a picture with you i was like are you kidding me can i take a picture with you she was just like the sweetest uh, i mean this woman has been through so much in her life and she was just the kindest most gracious woman and my mom could not have been prouder in that moment she was just standing there grinning from ear to ear, just feeling so happy that I didn't study journalism, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, Yeah, it was a great moment for me, for my family. My grandma came, my grandma was there. It was awesome. It was really cool. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, if you're just joining us, I'm talking to Tara Grammy. She is an actor, producer, playwright, born in Iran, grew up in Canada, had a huge hit with Mahmoud, and we were just talking about how the Queen of Iran came in and saw her performance, and she made her mom proud, and everybody in the audience was beaming. I got to ask you, on the side, I mean, these are all high impression, high prestige things, but were you making much of a living out of it? Oh, no, definitely not. I was babysitting up until just a few years ago, um, just to make ends meet. I'm so lucky. I've always been supported. Um, I've always kind of found a way through. My parents supported me and I was able to do little things, commercials, little things here and there that um, helped me uh, survive. But this has never been the, the biggest moneymaker for me until, until more recently um, where I've started to kind of establish myself more as an actor and, uh, you know, get, get paid uh, for the first time. But yeah, it's, it's never been... Uh, I think money. I'm still still waiting, still waiting for some checks. So that's that's something that I think an outsider and our our listenership, especially when we talk about the business of culture and the culture of business, you get this, you 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 know, kingmaker Woody Harrelson, uh, the Canadian government, all these various <laughs> awards, and you're flown into places. The Queen of Iran, right? Um, she could have benighted you, or the prince, the crown prince did, and yet you're still babysitting on the side. Oh, yeah. That's the truth for most actors. I mean, most of my friends. Uh, Why isn't it such that one of the agencies or one of the rainmakers in California is showing up and saying, oh, darling, you're going to be big. I'm going to get you on Saturday Night Live. Look look at the accent that I bring into it, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you're going to be huge. I'm going to get you on SNL. Or back in the day, there'd be, what was it, you know, Chicago Improv or as uh, Second City, or we'd get you out of New York. You're not exactly a, a, a stand-up comic, right? It's it's not an analogous thing that they could just plug you into. No, I'm, I'm definitely not a stand-up comic. I'm more of a, a, a character actor, uh, which, it, I mean, SNL is the ideal place for me. And when I met my manager, uh, Ray Mohit, my current manager, we met on the set of uh, Maz Giovanni's movie, Jimmy Westwood, and he just took a liking to me because I, I had a very small part in that. Yes. And, and we kind of stayed in touch and he was like, I sent him some, some stuff that I'd created, some, some videos that I'd made. And he was like, Hey, like you should be on SNL. And he really believed in me. And, and even though, you know, I already had a manager, he wasn't even trying to manage me at that time at all. He was just like supporting me. So I've, I've had really supportive people around me. I think I should like, just like keep thanking all of the people around me that have done this for me. And yeah, he he did push me in the direction of SNL and I had some great feedback from SNL who were actually interested in me, but it kind of just didn't happen that way. My career didn't take that SNL route uh, as much as I would have obviously loved for it to. But yeah, it, it's it. I have auditioned for all kinds of shows and gotten little parts. And I, no, the shoe hasn't dropped. Like it's kind of a pejorative type thing. But have you ever reached out to Nassim Pedrad or some other? I'm waiting for you know Iranian. An Iranian person has broken the SNL sam- sound barrier. In Nassim Pedrad, she uh, famously did uh, an impersonation of uh, who is the comedian from Parks and Recreations or Community. You know, she didn't have that long of a run on it. Is it still considered the gold standard for an aspiring comedy centric actor to end up on SNL as the ultimate springboard? I mean, first of all, Nassim Pedrad is amazing. She's incredible. I've met her a couple times. I actually auditioned to play her mom on the show that she has coming out called Chad, where she plays a 14 year old boy. Oh. Um, I love her. She's the coolest. And I obviously would have loved to follow in her footsteps and Uh end up on SNL. But uh, yeah, it is, of course, the gold standard. SNL will always be the gold standard for people in comedy. 
But now with YouTube and all these other platforms where you can see, have your characters be seen, give your characters a life, I think that especially in the world of sketch comedy, like there's so many schedules. I mean, that's what I'm kind of known for now too. I think that that's, um, it's not as, that's not true. It's still a pretty big deal. It's still a really big deal. I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah, so we have had Maz Jabrani on the show. We're both fans. You've collaborated with him. He was the host on The Persian Bachelorette and you played a part mm-hmm. in uh, Jimmy Vest Food and everything. And with him, similarly, there's a duality where he can completely sell out shows like when he brings on his stand-up persona whether it ends up on comedy central or hbo or showtime but then with an original screenplay he might have to raise money over kickstarter or crowdfund it right you're not exactly accepted in the kind of the the 360 degree potential you have as an actor as a playwright as a stand-up person it's kind of one area that that sells out the house and makes you money yeah, I think just getting funding for the arts is just always hard. And we're going to get to that. Yeah, we had that with a simple wedding. Um, it's just always hard to get funding for the arts. It's not something people easily invest in. And also going out to big studios, I think, that unfortunately. So in a simple wedding, which came out mm-hmm. in, was it 2019? Right. In December of 2019, it actually came out in it had a a festival run in Mm -hmm. 2019, um, but then it actually had its official uh, release on February 14th, 2020. The fortune of that. Yes. So the big bag, the big eye catcher thing here is that it was Rita Wilson executive produced A Simple Wedding. And if I remember correctly, wasn't it Rita and Tom Hanks who caught the talent behind a big fat Greek wedding? Yes. And they had her adapt that. So this film follows you as a character, Nusha, who has a habit of sabotaging your relationships and frustrating your parents as you are their only hope for a real Persian wedding. You fall fast when you meet Alex Christopher O'Shea, a bisexual artist, activist, and DJ living in an old warehouse. When your parents discover that you and Alex are living together before marriage, chaos ensues and they prepare for a wedding that's anything but simple. Uh, Not just Rita Wilson in this, but Shore Agdashlu, which is kind of, you know, She's like Iranian acting royalty, She's right? She's the queen. Maz, Maz Jobrani. So what was that like? And how did you get a foot in the door? How did you get a meeting with Rita Wilson? Because again, from the outside, when I saw that, I said, oh man, you're set. You just got your ticket punched. Rita Wilson, you know, Tom Hanks, this is a few months before they both contracted COVID. I think it was in Australia. It's just that the timing was so less than opportune. Yes, our release timing was definitely less than opportune, but it ended up kind of working out for us because we did get to have a theatrical run and then go into streaming on iTunes. Well, well, we Ryan, what was it like marketing this concept? Uh, you know, the the you said there were two years involved working with Shora Altashlu, meeting Rita Wilson. Take me back. So, um, Sara uh, Zandi and I, she's the uh, writer director of A Simple Wedding. Her and I um, met because she actually wanted to cast Nassim Pedrad in this role, um, but she was so she was looking for a uh, Iranian American uh, actress and who was comedic. And I was recommended to her by a bunch of people. And I did a table read for the movie, and I loved the script. And Sara and I got really drunk one night, and we decided to make the movie. We were just like, let's make it. Um, let's find a way to get it funded and just make it ourselves because she was pitching it to studios and they weren't biting. So she wanted, so we decided to just make it ourselves and we did, which is an extremely ambitious thing to decide when you're very drunk uh, at a bar, but we followed through in our drunkenness. So it worked out for everyone. Wait, how somehow you're burying the lead? How do you somehow get people like this from going to a drunken encounter? Let's just do this. Let's just do it however you can. Then suddenly getting Rita Wilson and Iranian royalty. If I remember, is she an Oscar-nominated actor? Didn't she win an Oscar? Yes. Shore Akhtashlu? Yeah, Shore uh, was nominated for a uh, an Academy Award uh, for the House of Sand and Fog, and mm. she won an Emmy for uh, the House of Saddam. So it all just kind of <laughs> happened uh, because um, we brought Ray on board and uh, Ray Mohit, who I spoke about earlier, he's he's my manager, and they also have a production company. It's all mainstay entertainment. And so Mainstay came on board 
started with oh, wow. me and Sara, and we decided the three of us to just make this movie and using his connections and kind of our connections, we got Rita on board, who then got uh, Shorya on board. It, it was it was kind of like we, we sent the script to Rita's agent who sent it to her and it was a very different character for her. Um, it was like a, a, a love interest character. So she really loved that. And she spoke to Sara and she was like, let's get Shora in here. And they knew each other from before and they'd never worked together, but had always wanted to. Mm. So we got Shora Jun in and then she brought her husband, Hu Sheng in, who played my dad. And um, Maz is also repped by Ray. So Maz came on board too. And bada bing, bada So bing. is this how a build becomes a law is you need someone like a, a, a queen maker like a Rita Wilson to get a shore. It's not like you could have beeline to a shore after you came out of that that drink and said, let's make this movie. And by the way, I have a chip to call in with Shore Al-Dashlu. <laughs> I want to understand how this works. Actually, I know it's all second nature to you, but do you have to go out and raise money for a sizzle, a trailer? Do you have to build what they call a kind of a Bible with characters or uh, you know, enough for the inducement to put out there in front of people? So first of all, I want to say about Shoha June that she's so kind and generous with her time. And it's really cool that she would even consider doing something like this with how busy she was. But she is just like that. She always considers everything. And I just want to say that I try to follow that model, too. Um well, I kind of forgot to mention that Sara and I, when we got drunk that night, we'd already made a sizzle for a simple wedding, which Sara just funded herself. She just used her connections and got everyone together and we made a little sizzle, which we then, that night that we got drunk, decided to shop around to different people who had funding. Tara, I know it's it's decidedly un-Persian to get into the nuts and bolts and talk shop of the funding, but again... I mean, what is it when you make a when you when you have all these people lined up, the great cast, the great personalities? I mean, you could throw Rita Wilson, you can invoke Shore, you have a little bit of Maz Jobrani to get you kind of more comedic cred across the United States. What is an investor looking in? Is it just a is it kind of a vanity investment? Like I'm never really looking to make anything on this. I just want some credit somewhere. I want to be able to show up at the opening and say that I helped create this. Or are they actually getting a return on that investment? Um, to be honest, I'm like the wrong person to talk to ever about anything financial because I don't know why anybody would want to invest in film. But I think it really had to do with our investors were Iranian and it had to do with them wanting to invest in these two young Persian girls who wanted to make a movie. Um, I think mm. it was more that kind of thing. It was more just a way to give us a start, someone giving us a break, someone giving us the opportunity for our work to be shown. And, and Sara is an incredible director who directed some wonderful award-winning shorts before this. So she was someone to believe in. And I guess I was someone to believe in. So it, it just people believing in us. So at that point, I mean, what what is the motivation kind of seeking out a big studio for a theatrical release versus, say, going straight to a Netflix or an Amazon? One of the things that we've discussed quite a bit on this show is how that old you know, monopoly or duopoly or triopoly has been smashed into so many different bits. And in this OTT streaming world, you hear of the content and you pick up the streaming thing, whether it's, you know, BBC America, PBS streaming, HBO, Netflix, Amazon, Disney Plus. Was that a kind of a liberating option that we don't have to go and genuflect before this old kind of crusty, you know, four or five major film studios in California? Well, we did have a distributor that that we sold the film to. It, it, it was an independent film, which is obviously way more. There's a lot more freedom, but there's also a lot less money, which has its own challenges. Um, and obviously anyone would love to have the financial backing of a studio and the resources of a studio. But we didn't have that. So we created this small independent movie and then we sold it to a distributor who they were the ones who kind of pitch it to Netflix and the different streamers, which unfortunately we, we were not on any of those, but we are available to rent on iTunes and Amazon, which is another freeing thing in and of itself that that um, people have access to us, especially during the pandemic. Um, people have access to us. Well, I, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Tell me about the reception of The Persian Bachelorette, which 
really picked up, which caught fire on YouTube. Every Iranian person sent it around. This idea of kind of recreating the Bachelorette scene with you and your your chaperone, who's, I don't know, is the actress's name Nusha? I'm not allowed to ask much about her, but she's great. She's kind of this archetypal beret-wearing chaperone or governess or auntie, and you interview all these characters. And I love how you cast dispersions on comedians. Everybody who shows up and you say, what you are doing? And they say, actually, I'm a comedian. And you mumble in Farsi, like, gosh, all these comedians, I thought they were going to be educated people. You could almost imagine, you know, your uncle and your grandfather and everybody casting dispersions on your career. But how was that received? And is that, again, that's kind of just the stakes of being a creative out there. You're not making really any income on that. Well, the only income that comes out of my YouTube videos like Persian Bachelorette is from the like advertisements, but it's definitely, I'm not getting millions of views a day, which I mean, I'm, I hope to, um, but we're not getting millions of views. So we're not making a lot of money. I'm not making a living from it, but I've never really done any of this for the money. Persian Bachelorette blew up. It went viral. People loved it. And yeah, it, it kind of got my name out there in a different way as, as, a, as more of a sketch comedian. So that's what Persian Bachelorette has done for me. Which makes you the exception to the rule in Los Angeles, I imagine, in Irangelis. Yes, <laughs> not caring about money definitely makes me the exception to the rule here. It's just kind of the, the way I am. I create because I need to create, because I want to create, because I have something to say. I hope to be fine. I mean, I, I mean, obviously that making money for your art is, I mean, important and something I, I strive to and, and I've had the opportunity to do. But um, for the most part, I'll always make things because I need to make them. I want to make them. And I think that's um, a, a good way into the industry. Don't listen what they're telling you on the CNN, BBC, NBC, CBC, whatever. Meet Mahmoud, once an engineer in Iran, now a chatty cab driver in Toronto. Iran is the land of the kings. It is the land of the emperors. It's the birthplace of... I'm sorry, my friend. It is my wife. She's calling you. Minding I answer? No problem. Hello? Salam. When I first came here and I was doing Mahmoud, in one of the talkback sessions uh, after the show, somebody stood up and was like, you know, maybe you have Iranian cab drivers in Toronto, but here in Los Angeles, Iranians are, you know, we own the cab company. We, we own the building of the cab company. We, none of us are cab drivers. And I got into a fight with this guy because I was like, you're part of the problem. You're part of the problem people have with Iranian Persians and, and this materialism and this kind of obsession with, with wealth that is kind of terrible here. You know, it's not real. It's not everybody's experience, but everybody feels like they have to put on this front and act like they're rich, even if they're not. I've gotten a lot of grief about it, too. You know, I, I've met lower lower income families who take out uh, massive loans to throw a wedding for their daughters. Uh, there are there are wedding loan sharks in the community there. What happened? I mean, how long have you been in L.A.? And there's so much fodder for you and Maz and all these other comics and and and, and people to kind of write about out there. The the van the vanity of Terangelis with now forty years of data to mine. So I've been in L.A. for uh, like eight years, seven eight years. Um, and it's just so different from, from Toronto. It's just a different world. I think Iranians, um, that are here are maybe the, the richer Iranians that left right after the revolution and started a life here. And then, um, the ones from Canada where I grew up are all, um, older immigrants, like later immigrants that, that migrated mm. in the nineties, which is when we, we migrated to Canada. So I think that, yeah, there's just a different emphasis on wealth and mm -hmm. on prosperity. And, you know, here there are a lot of Persian uh, Jews. The, the Persian Jewish community is very vibrant here and they had to kind of form their identity. And then there's a Baha'i or Persian Baha'i community that had to form their identity. And I think a lot of it has unfortunately been under the guise of, of prosperity and, and showing that to people here. Well, Tara, Tara, John, what is next for you? I mean, uh, we, we do hear a lot about the gig economy and creatives, especially in the pandemic. I have to ask you how you've continued to create, how you've done things remotely. Have you been on Cameo? Have you gotten advertising solicitations where you kind of maybe lend the personality of a, of a manager or the bachelorette 
to other things. How have you stayed relevant and creative, especially after the frustration of, I mean, again, Rita Wilson is one of the first main recognizable Hollywood figure I remember getting COVID. And this coincided a year ago, right with your movie being released. Um, I've just continued creating. We did a manija in quarantine. Um, it's called Persian Quarantine with Manija, um, where we recorded a bunch of uh, different Iranians all over the world and made it so that we were all together. And it was like a coming together of Iranians in quarantine. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen that one, but you should definitely check it out. And then um, I'm also the host of Persia's Got Talent, which we were going to shoot in Sweden we finished the audition episodes last October, and then we were going to do the two semifinals and the final in March, right when the quarantine hit. So uh, that got postponed. So I just shot that the second half, those last three shows in Sweden uh, in October, which was really cool. So so that gave me something to do. And then uh, now I'm creating with the the same person who I created Persian Bachelorette and all the manager sketches with. We're actually creating a Persian sitcom series, a Persian sitcom web series, which is about a Persian family. And uh, I play two characters. And yeah, it's it's us kind of taking the sitcom genre, which is kind of dead um, since we both grew up watching, you know, Full House. Uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, uh, King of Queens, Frasier, Friends, all of the great sitcoms. We wanted to kind of create our own version, something a little Tara would have wanted to see on TV when she was a kid with people that looked like her. So that's kind of what we're working on now. And yeah, I've just, I've kept busy. I've kept creating. I did do one collaboration with another creator with Manige, but that's... I think they'll, I think I'll probably keep doing managers, but uh, I think I'm going to start focusing on this Persian sitcom thing for now. Or you, you gave it, I'm such a fanboy that I remember what during that, that first Persian bachelorette is like, it's so unethical. It's that look that you always give off, (laughs) but go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. That look is, I think a very iconic manager thing. The, the look of disdain and uh, distrust and hatred, sheer hatred, it seems, uh, from her. That's kind of her thing, which is taken from, again, all of the mean Persian poor aunties <laughs> that uh, treat everyone terribly and somehow get away with it mm-hmm. because they love you. You know what I mean? So. And again, I know it sounds obvious, but talk about the autonomy of, you know, an Instagram persona. You can now directly be connected to people. You don't have to go through a studio. You could produce these things and people can come to you via multi-channels. You're you're nominally on Twitter, but substantially on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. And I don't know about TikToks and all these other things you youngins are doing and Clubhouse, but what what about the potential there? Because on the one hand, it's so dispersed, but that's also what's liberating about it is that, that there aren't one or two or three thumbs on the scale of everything. Honestly, it's all liberating. It's so cool that I can create content and know that I have an audience on Instagram and know that I have an audience on YouTube and I have the freedom to do whatever I want and people will watch it. That is so cool and and something that um, people didn't have in the past. So as as a creator, as someone who likes to, to make sketches, I think that social media is really important. I'm not on TikTok. I think that's more of a Gen Z thing. I'm a millennial. So, I mean, maybe I should be, though. I always think that. I'm like, I should be making TikTok videos. There's a lot of pressure. Um, But I think that it's very cool to be able to have a platform to have people watch your stuff, to create stuff, and people want to watch it. How how cool is that? It's it's really a great world to be living in right now as 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 a creator, especially since, you know, we have the technology in our hands to shoot. You don't need to rent expensive camera equipment. You know, it's just technology for the win, especially during this pandemic. One of the things I'm very grateful for that I force myself to make gratitude lists during this pandemic all the time. And one is always technology in how it's connected me to people I love in how it's given me the ability to continue creating, to continue making things and keep myself busy. Tara Grammy, close us out in the few minutes we have left with you. What's ahead for you? What's ahead for the industry? It's still a time of enormous disruption. And I imagine that that must be both terrifying and emboldening for 
a, a creative starting out, still trying to eke out a living and an identity. And, you know, you certainly got more than lucky, right? You came out of the gate of college with something that was a passion project that got wide acceptance and gave you instant cred as a playwright. Uh, what, what, what do you want to conquer or traverse next? I think what I want to conquer next is really the film and television world. I, I want to be a recognizable face in film and TV and represent the Iranian community because I feel like we're so underrepresented and there are so many of us. I want to keep telling stories about the Iranian diaspora. I want to keep putting our content out there, our world out there as a way to connect to the homes, to, to, to our American homes, you know? That's really important to me and that's what I will continue doing. And to your point about the restrictions that COVID's created, you know, look at Iran, look at the incredible art that has come out of Iran over the past 40 years under extreme censorship and extreme uh, restrictions. So I think, you know, restriction can breed creativity. And so that's kind of hopefully what the next few years will start to see is the creativity that came out of this quarantine, out of this time of solitude. And uh, hopefully you'll see more of it from me too. You know, and I know, I know for a fact that Lauren Michaels of SNL listens to this show, full disclosure, religiously, religiously, two, three times weekly, indeed. And so if you had that hearing, if you had that elevator pitch with him and the sizzle and everything behind you, and what would you say? I would say, Lauren June, uh, please put me on your show. I'm a very funny guy. Uh, I make you proud. You can't walk on, you can't do something audacious, like show up at Rock Center and say, hey, me. In the row, you know, there's no stunt way of getting on. No, I, there's definitely <laughs> no way of getting on SNL just like that. Maybe like in the 70s, people could do that. But I'm pretty sure security would carry me out now um, and probably put me in a mental institution. So. But you won't get deported to Canada because he is nominally a Canadian. That's but. true. Very Canadian. <laughs> Tara Grammy, such a joy to finally have you on the show. Actor, producer, playwright. Give us all your social media particulars and deets and stuff that's coming up and things that people can look up and where they can find your work? Just Google Tara Grammy. I'm all over YouTube. I'm all over Instagram at Tara Grammy, Twitter at Tara Grammy. Um, please watch A Simple Wedding on iTunes and Amazon. We really love getting the support of non-Iranians who watch this adorable romantic comedy. And that's it. Look out for this Persian sitcom that um, I'll be releasing soon, hopefully within the next month or so. Well, from my cheap seats here in the year 2021, I'm telling everyone, and this is breaking kind of disclosure, that you are headed big places. You're going big places, and I'm going to say that I had you on my show just like I had Maz Jobrani on the show, Jimmy O. Yang and everybody. Uh, There's a wonderful personality, uh, shadow and persona to check out, Tara Grammy. Thank you so much for coming on Full Disclosure. You're going to come back on, right? Thank you so much for having me, Robin June. Of course I'm going to come back on. I am so, so grateful for your support and your kindness, Robin June. Honestly, it's people like you that put people like me on the map. So I'm extremely grateful to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. This show podcasts on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple. Subscribe at link fulldradio.com. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Music